Take your seats again. We're going to make a start with the sermon. Good stuff. Well, welcome to King's Church. I'd like to add my welcome to that that you've already had. My name's Paul. I'm one of the elders here, one of the pastors. It's great to have you with us. And uh, particularly if you're visiting with us, you're so welcome. I hope you're having a fantastic morning. So as Nick said, we're going through a series called Ask London, which is a fantastic idea. What we've done is we've, we've been out to our friends and our colleagues and our family and our associates and our workmates, and we've said, can we video you just sharing something about God that you object to? Are there any, any big questions you've got, um, challenges that you think, um, you know, if you were to meet God, what would you say? And it's been fantastic the way people have responded to that. We've had some really interesting responses in on video. And then we've put together this preaching series to try and address some of those questions. And this is really good because if you've got a friend who's struggling with one of those questions, it's a brilliant opportunity to bring them along on a Sunday or maybe share the podcast and say, hey, that's interesting. You know, why don't you come along to church? We're talking about that on Sunday if they're, if they're thinking about that particular issue. Also, it's really helpful if you're a Christian just to be reminded of some of this stuff. You know, some of this stuff is really, is really helpful. And also, if maybe you need a bit of confidence building for next time you're in a difficult conversation and someone says, well, what about the Bible? Where did that come from? And you freeze. Well, maybe having heard some of these talks, you might be able to go, oh, yeah, I remember that talk. And you just, you just might be able to have that conversation a bit more easily. So it's been a really good series. And um, so why don't we have a look at today's video without further ado, find out what today's topic is, shall we? Uh, scriptures, that's just a lot of uh, words written down by blokes or women with faith that are repeated again and again by other blokes or women with faith. You've just written those words down because you believe, great, that doesn't make me any closer to God or make me think, oh, well, that's definitely, oh, but it's the word of God. Mm, no, it's not. You wrote that down or that bloke, that friend of yours or that relation or that bloke from centuries ago wrote that down. doesn't mean it's the word of God. Word of God. It's just what he wrote down. Uh, okay. Wow. That guy's great, isn't he? I don't know who that is. Fantastic. Do you remember the film um, Monty Python's Life of Brian? He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Well, I, I, I could just imagine that guy doing that line, that kind of irony that he's got, I really find, find fantastic. And we're so grateful for the folks that have put their hand up and said, yeah, I'll do those videos, because it's a big ask. And I asked some people, and they said, I'm not doing that. So I, I think it's fantastic that some people have. So thanks to him and all the others. But he tackles something that I think really strikes um, Christians as quite foundational, really. It's how can I trust the Bible? How can I trust the Bible? And if we can't trust the Bible, we're, we're in trouble, really, um, as Christians. So that's what, what we're going to look at today. If it's not trustworthy, um, then, we're, then we're in trouble. But if it is trustworthy, then it says some really far-reaching things, and it's got some profound implications for us that we really should take ever so seriously. So it's one of those kind of do-or-die questions. It's not a kind of, I can end up somewhere in the middle. It's either of no relevance whatsoever, or it's of profound relevance. As well as um, our friend on the video, um, I saw in um, the Newsweek magazine an article from 2014, and it said this. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I. And neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on, hundreds of times. Ooh, gosh, that's tough, isn't it? It's a huge question. It's a huge question. Is the Bible reliable and authentic? Obviously, lots of people don't think it is. 
Today we want to look at that question, and what I'm going to do, I can't really tackle the whole Bible, and I can't do this from every angle. There's dozens of different angles you could take. We're just going to look at the New Testament, and when we get to the end of the talk, we'll kind of reference the Old Testament, and hopefully that will make sense as well. But I'm going to focus on the, on, the, on the New Testament. And I want to look at some of those claims that those people have made, or some of those challenges. So particularly we're going to look at you know, translations, we're going to look at copies, we're going to look at who wrote it, and things like that. Now, you've got to say the Bible is um, every publisher's dream. I mean, it sells like hotcakes every year. It's always the top seller. You know, estimates vary, but um, The Economist says that there's more than 100 million Bibles sold or given away every year. It's massive. So the influence is huge. But again, if it's not reliable, then it's of no value. But what about the New Testament? It was written by eight authors. So our friend on the video said, who wrote it? That was, that was what he was asking. It was written by eight authors. There was Matthew, who was one of the 12, one of the 12 apostles. Mark, who traveled with Barnabas and um, ministered with Paul and Peter. There was Luke, who's mentioned three times in the New Testament, and he worked with Paul, and he was a doctor. There was John, who was one of the 12 apostles. Uh, there was James, who was Jesus' brother. There was Jude, who was Jesus' brother. Um, there was Paul, who's not one of the 12, but Jesus commissioned him directly. And then, did I miss out Peter? He was one of the 12. So that, they're the eight authors. So you can see they're all kind of Jesus' contemporaries, associated with Jesus, family of Jesus, closely linked to Jesus. Yeah? So, and when was the New Testament written? Well, scholars estimate that it was written about AD 40 to about AD 80, something like that. So the second half, towards the end of the first century, Jesus died AD 33. So with that in mind, what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on three big questions today. One, can I trust that the New Testament scriptures are authentic? And that's going to pick up questions like translation, the copies thing that that guy referred to. Two, can I trust that the authors were telling the truth? Is this just man-made fiction? Did someone just write it down, like that guy said? Or is there something more to it? And then three, can I trust the account of Jesus' resurrection? Okay? That's what we're going to look at today. Now, normally, we open the Bible, we take a passage, we read through that, we work through that. It's fantastic here at King's Church. This is a bit different. Today, we're, we're doing less of that. We're kind of more holding the Bible up and sort of saying, can I trust it? So I, I'll be honest, I feel a little bit on shaky ground. I'd much rather open the Bible and go, let's look at a passage. So I'm going to pray about this because I want this to be really good and I want this to really land with, with folks today. Okay? Lord, we just want to pray for this talk today, Lord. I pray you'd um, really speak to me, Lord, speak through me, and I pray what you say would land in people's hearts and really touch them today, Lord. Speak to folks directly today. We do ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good. Right. Can I trust that the New Testament scriptures are authentic? So first of all, we're going to look at that question of translation. So translations of translations? No, bad translations of translations of translations. Let's have a look at that. Um, many of you know we've, we're linked with a school here in Kingston. We opened a school 12 months ago um, with, a, with um, two classes of reception. They came in 12 months ago. They've moved up to year one now. We've got two more classes of reception. It's fantastic, all these little kids running around. But we've got a lot of kids for whom English is an extra language. It's not their first language. And I thought it would be interesting just to read the list of languages that kids turn up with to, to our school every day. So as their first language, we have one Albanian speaker, one Greek speaker, three Koreans, four Polish, two Russians, four Spanish, two Urdu, one Arabic, one French, two Italian, one Kurdish, one Portuguese, two Slovakian, one Filipino, and two Vietnamese. 
Wow, that's a list, isn't it? It's like the United Nations down there. It's fantastic. And lots of these kids turn up on day one with no English. They come from families who don't speak English at home. It's extraordinary. But very soon, they're running around with their friends, and they're learning English, and they're picking it up, and they just, they just blossom. It's fantastic. In just a few weeks, they're doing so well. It's fantastic to see. They have no problem with their language whatsoever. I, on the other hand, have a great deal of problems with language. I'm not good at languages. And uh, when I was at school, I was learning Spanish. And we were doing the thing where the teacher would ask you questions in Spanish. You had to answer in Spanish. And um, we, were, we were doing about clothing, and she said to me, I don't even know what the Spanish is, what are you wearing on your feet? And let me get this right. I said, y llevo. No, I was meant to say, y llevo zapatos, which is, I'm wearing shoes. But I said, y llevo patatas. <laughs> I'm wearing potatoes. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, four-year-old kids in Kingston, much better at language than I was, for sure. But um, the issue about translation, though, um, is, is really something to think about, because if you get four translators in a room and ask them to translate something, you'll get four versions of the original, because people do translate stuff differently. So even in English today, we've got different translations of the Bible. And people go, well, hang on a second, that's flawed then, isn't it? Because how can they all be the same? Which one, which one am I going to believe in? But I'm not sure that is an issue, really. You see, if you get the 1611 version of the King James Bible, it was translated in 1611, and you open it up and you read a verse, and you get the Bible that we use today here, the English Standard Version, which, you know, I don't know, 10 years old at the most, and the 1611 version is in contemporary language, and the English Standard Version is in our contemporary language, and you read the same verse, it's quite clear what the original verse meant. You're not flawed by that, are you? It's not an issue. So the fact that we do translate into different language doesn't need to be an obstacle. In fact, it can actually help. If you've got different translations of the Bible and different scholars have produced those translations, it helps you cast, you know, it helps you pick up the different nuances that are in the verses. So it can actually help in, in, in some ways. Bear in mind as well that when, when scholars and, and um, translators work on these things, they actually disagree fundamentally on a very, very few key words and key phrases. So there's not a whole slew of, of problems in those translations. There are some things that scholars don't agree on. But very helpfully, if you get a good Bible like this and look in the margin, it says, oh, this word could be translated that way. Or it says, scholars disagree on, how, on the exact meaning of this verse. So it's not a secret. In fact, if you get a good Bible, you can see where those interesting verses are, and I'd encourage you to do that, and then get the originals out and have a look and think about it and pray about it, look into it and find out what the truth is. So these things aren't hidden in secret. And in fact, like I said, if you get a couple of versions, it's really helpful to, to, to look across different versions of the Bible. Because you know what? If someone wanted to tamper with the Bible and produce something that was a bit, a bit wrong for whatever reason, you can spot it because we've got different translations of the Bible. A really good example, at the beginning of John's Gospel, it says, um, in, the w- in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So what it means is, in the beginning was Jesus, because it calls Jesus the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, capital G. And if you look in all the major translations of the Bible, that's what they say. And then if you pick up a, a Bible called the New World Translation, which is the bi- Bible that the um, Je- Jehovah's Witnesses produced, it says the Word was a God, lowercase g. Because what they think is that there's lots of gods and Jesus was just one of them, but he's not the creator god. And so what they've done is they've, is they've changed that verse to fit their purpose. It's really helpful to have translations of the Bible to go, wait a minute, that's a total outlier. And all of these other Bibles have always said 
Jesus is God. So actually having different versions of the Bible can be really helpful to, stop, to, to spot anyone that's um, tampered with the original. And it's got to be said that when you take all the um, deliberate mistranslations out of the loop, like the New World Test, uh, Translation, not one major doctrine of Orthodox Christianity rests on disputed or uncertain translation. So translation, not an issue. I don't think that guy's criticism that says, translations of translations, blah, blah, I don't think that's a valid criticism. There isn't, for me, that's not a logical point to make. So let's move on from that. So translation, what about the copies? Transmission. So <clears throat> situation is, the original books were written. The book of Mark's gospel was written. And then what happens is, um, it immediately gets copied because churches are going, my goodness, this is really speaking to us. So copies are made immediately and then handed around local to churches. And that's the process that we see. Copies are made of the, of the, the originals. Now, what's happened over time is the originals have been lost. So the original of Mark's gospel is not available to us anymore. We don't know where it is. The original of Romans isn't available to us anymore. But we've got the copies. And um, this isn't a big issue for historians. This is, this is how history works. You know, very rarely are ancient documents nicely preserved for us exactly as they were, you know, and historians can go to them. That's not how it works. They very often get lost. And historians are left with copies, and they have to kind of infer. They have to decide what the original said from all the available copies they've got. That's what they do. And it's worth knowing that, um, as we said before, the originals of the New Testament were written around AD 40 to AD 80, something like that. The earliest copies we've got date from around AD 125 to AD, 50, AD 150, something like that. So there's a gap between when the originals were written and when these earliest copies are. And that period's about whatever that difference is, 45, 75 years, something like that. Now, that's not a big deal. You go, oh my goodness, that's terrible. What happened during those intervening years? If you look on your bookshelves at home, well, if you look on our bookshelves, you're going to find books that are easily 50 years old. You know, today books last, and that's absolutely fine. Well, back in the day, when it took you weeks and weeks and weeks to copy out a book, so to get, get hold of that book that was yours, there was a huge process involved. It took, took scholars weeks to write these things. They were going to make sure they, they were robust and they lasted and they were going to look after them. The lifetime of books in those days was much longer than the lifetime of books today. So, which is interesting, but what's the point? Well, the point is, if you take the originals when they were written in that period, AD 40 to AD 80, those books would have had a lifetime of decades, probably hundreds of years. And then we get the earliest copies that were written 45 years later, these copies were being made during the lifetime of the originals. It doesn't allow for that theory, oh, it was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, which is all lost, and now we get our earliest version, so you can't trace back what the original said. It doesn't allow for that, because these original books had such a long lifetime. We, we can say with fair certainty that many of the copies we've got were directly from the original. So that copies of copies thing is a bit of a, it's a, bit of a red herring, I think. Then the other thing you need to know is that historians, as part of this process of looking at text, they call it textual criticism. They look at the number of copies they've got when they're trying to decide what the original said. And the more copies they've got, the easier it is to find out what the original said. And the closer that the copy is to the original in terms of time, the easier it is to, try to figure out what the original said. That all makes sense. So let me give you some um, examples. You may have heard of these. Julius Caesar wrote a book called Gallic Wars, there are nine or ten readable copies 
And the earliest of these copies is dated from 900 years after the original was written. So that's quite a period, but nine or ten copies. So historians go, yeah, we think we know what the original said. We've got nine or ten copies. Bit of a time gap, but we can work it out. So that's fine. Tacitus wrote the histories and annals. There are two copies of those available, one from 800 years and one from 1,000 years after the originals were written. So the time period is similar, but you've only got two copies. So it's less reliable, but it's not a big deal for historians. They work with that, and they go, we know what the originals said. Not a big deal. New Testament... 30,000-plus manuscripts available from those times. The earliest is a few decades after the originals. So it blows away other ancient writings in terms of attestation, they call it. How reliable are those copies? There's very, very good historical evidence to say, yeah, these copies are good. We've got a high degree of confidence in what the original said because of how many copies we've got and how close they are to the original. So that copies of copies of copies thing as well, I just think is a red herring. So let's not look at that any further. I want to throw in another question that these guys didn't, didn't pick up on, but people do ask about this, so let's have a look at this. And it's the, the curation. Can I trust the canon of Scripture? So which books got in the New Testament and which didn't? Because some books did and some books didn't. How do I know they picked the right ones? And what people always tell you, they say, oh, there was this terrible guy, Constantine, he was a pagan, and he chose what's in the New Testament, and now Christians are using it, and that's a really bad idea. If you read um, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, published in 2003, I mean, it was a fantastic book. I read it, really enjoyed it, a real page-turner, hugely successful um, attracted lots of publicity because it was, it was a good read, it was very successful, but it challenged the, um, the New Testament in terms of the, the books that were in the New Testament. It challenged lots of things to do with Christianity, actually. But um, it says in there, it says, um, there were t- two characters there, one called Sophie and one called Teabing. Who chose which Gospels to include, Sophie asked. Aha, Teabing burst in with enthusiasm. The fundamental irony of Christianity The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor, Constantine the Great. The Da Vinci Code then supports this idea of a shadowy cabal of 'er ne'er-do-wells who decided for their nefarious purposes, we'll have that one, not that one, not that one, not that one, we'll have this one, and for some reason that would support their political position, their ideology, I'm not sure. So it implies that there's other writings out there of equal worth that we don't know about. Conspiracy theories abound. But it would be a scandal, wouldn't it, if that was true? It would be a scandal. M- manipulating popular understanding like that. Deceit on a grand scale. So it's right for us to ask which books should be in the New Testament and which shouldn't. I mean, you, will have heard, you may have heard of um, the Gospel of St. Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. There's lots of these books that kind of float around. And if you look at them, they say different things from the New Testament. And What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do? Well, you need to understand that the early church... First of all, the early church, so in the, in the sort of the few decades after Jesus' death, at that stage, there wasn't a whole library of these things floating around. These things, these things were coming on stream over a few hundred years. So when the early church were, were around, there wasn't a whole library of these things. Some of these books were around, some weren't. And pretty well what they did was they, they looked at the books they've got, and pretty well, in, in, within a few decades, within a couple of decades, the four Gospels and nearly all of the writings of Paul were kind of embraced as, as Scripture. And the church said, these writings are reliable. We know for good reason, and we'll, we'll have a look at some of those reasons. So at a very early stage, the church had already said, they, they didn't call it a canon, they didn't call it the New Testament, but they said, these are the writings that we believe are um, from God, they're inspired by God, and these are the writings we're going to trust. 
Then what happened, the, so this is in the first century. Jesus died AD 33 in that first century. Go into the second century. In the first half of the second century, a group of guys um, whom we now call the Apostolic Fathers, who were eminent Christian leaders, were also writing books and letters. Now these guys um, arose, they, I think historians reckon, they were, the, uh, they were the disciples of the original apostles. So they're very closely linked to Jesus. Now, their writings endorse the writings of the four Gospels and the letters of Paul, the New Testament. They say, you know, they, they reference those, they write things about them, they write other stuff. All of their writing is consistent with what we now call the New Testament. None of their writings got, got into the New Testament. But all of, the, all of their writing supports the New Testament. So, the beginning of the second century, we've got good documentary evidence from, from the church leaders to go, that's what we're taking as authoritative scripture. And then we begin to see after that stuff like the Gospel of Peter that actually was written sometime later and wasn't written by Peter and you know, all that other stuff begins to come in and begins to challenge those original scriptures. By then, the, the church had already figured out, okay, we, we, we're going to trust these four Gospels and we're going to trust the letters of Paul. So these other things came in as kind of challenges, if you like. And what the church did, they said, they, 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 they asked three questions. They said, Here's a book. Oh, look, this, this, this book's just come to our attention. The Gospel of um, Thomas, for example. And they say, question one, was it written by one of the 12 apostles or a close associate of the 12 apostles? And if it was, they give it some weight. And if it wasn't, they give it less weight. Number, number two, is the teaching in that book consistent with what we've already been hanging on to now for decades? Jesus told us this stuff, we hung on to it. We're getting it from these Gospels and the letters of Paul. We, we're pretty secure in our kind of doctrinal uh, trajectory at this point. Are these books consistent? And if they're not, that's a real challenge. And then the other question they ask is, are these books being widely used among the churches? Because if, if some books come up from some corner somewhere, some little sect, no one's ever heard of it, you kind of go, oh, that, that, puts, that puts doubt on it. That's a, that, that's a challenge as well. So that was the kind of lens that the early church were using when they were figuring out what would comprise the New Testament, what books they were going to trust as being Scripture. So it's not, you know, you don't need to wait till the 4th century, Constantine comes along with his baddie friends, decides what's in the New Testament. That happened but the fact is that the church had already established that sort of canon of books and said, these are the books that we're going we're gonna to trust. There are a couple of exceptions to that. You look at things like Revelation that comes in afterwards, but there's good reasons, and we can chat about that later if you want to. But essentially, the core of the New Testament was decided by the early church. Many people think in the first century, certainly in the early part of the second century. So I think we've got good reason to trust that we're looking at the right books we're not looking at the wrong books. This isn't a conspiracy. So from a translation a, and a transmission and a curation viewpoint, I think we can say the New Testament is authentic and trustworthy. But then we get on to the next question, which is, can I trust that the New Testament writers were telling the truth? You see, it's possible that all those other things we've said are true. Translation was right, curation was right, etc., etc. But it was just a fiction. You know, we have that all the time. People are always going, ah, oh, William Shakespeare, I've looked at an early copy of Macbeth, and it doesn't look like something else Shakespeare did. And people are always saying that Shakespeare has been written by other people, or some of it has. And, and they talk about that and they argue about it. But at the end of the day, it's still just historical fiction. So it doesn't kind of move the dial, really. And what if the same is true of Scripture? That we can figure out who wrote it, and we can, we can look at that, and we can look at the translations, but these are just fairy stories at the end of the day. 
What if, what if the original authors never meant us to interpret this stuff historically? That would be tricky, wouldn't it? Well, let's look at what the Bible says about itself, first of all, because I think that's helpful. I'm just going to read some, some, some passages to you. At the very start of Luke's gospel, now Luke, we said before, Luke wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he was, he was a physician, and um, he, he traveled with Paul and worked with Barnabas. So he's very closely associated with those early guys. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So that doesn't read like a fiction. He's, this is the start of Luke's gospel. He's kind of setting out his stall. He's going, this is the truth. You know, big red light, this is the truth. Let's look at this, um, 1 John, again at the start of 1 John, John's letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is John that was one of the 12 apostles. He's going, that which we've seen and touched, he was there. He's going, that that I can give you first-hand experience of, I'm going to share that with you. And then at the end of John's gospel, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The text declares itself to be authentic. Now if you look at the front of novels, like um, Dan Brown's book, Da Vinci Code, it says at the front, um, you know, the names, characters, businesses, etc., are the product of the author's imagination and used fictitiously. So, you know, novels usually put that sort of thing in the front. But the Bible kind of goes to great pains in the opposite direction to say, this is the truth, these are facts, trust these words. So furthermore, interestingly, scholars have looked at the style of the writing of the New Testament, and then they've looked at the style of the writing of other things from the time, fantasies, fictions, and things like that. And they're saying the prevailing style of fiction and fantasy at the time is quite different from the style that we see in the New Testament. The style in the New Testament is much more akin with kind of factual accounts, reports, letters. So the, 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 the writing style doesn't say to us that this is fiction. The writing style says this is more, consi- more consistent with fact. So we, we don't think they were... They were writing fantasy. But what if it was a hoax? What if, they, what if we can't trust them because these documents all stack up? They were written at the time, but it was just a, it was a hoax. They were trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I can't imagine why, but imagine if they did. Well, you, you, have, you have to challenge that view. You see, the New Testament books, as we've said, were written within a few decades of these things happening. So they would be read by hundreds, thousands of people that saw these things happening, spoke to Jesus, heard these things, knew these things, had these stories in their family, were passing these stories on already. (coughs) They'd have cried foul. They'd have said, that's not true. I know, I was there, that's not true. But there's no documentary account of anybody doing that. 
opponents to Christianity would have had a field day because these books were coming out, the church was exploding, it was going crazy. Opponents would just have to go, no, 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 that's all, that's all false, isn't it? It's a hoax. They would just have to call it out, produce some evidence, end of Christianity. Didn't happen. No record of that happening. You'd have to ask as well, what are the, what's the motive for, for producing a hoax? Why would you want to do that? You know, very often today, hoaxes, it's about money or it's about power or, I don't know, overnight celebrity. I just don't see, the, see these authors doing that. You know, in fact, you know, the fact is most of the disciples were killed for their faith. So you wouldn't be killed for a hoax. You wouldn't, you wouldn't carry the hoax to that extreme. So it doesn't really stack up that it was a hoax either. I think as well it's, it's, worth, it's worth noting that the differences between the Gospels as well. I think some people have, have kind of said, well, hang on a second. I've got four Gospel writers. Um, if you're telling me that that's the truth, how come it's four different versions of the truth? Does that stack up? Wouldn't you expect them to be exactly the same if it's the truth? And that's an interesting challenge. and I think, I think that's a really, a really interesting point. But let me read what N.T. Wright wrote, N.T. Wright in a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. He says, The stories exhibit exactly that surface tension which we associate not with tales artfully told by people eager to sustain a fiction and therefore anxious to make everything look right, but the hurried, puzzled accounts of those who've seen with their own eyes something which took them horribly by surprise and with which they've not yet fully come to terms. So that kind of makes sense to me. If you get four eyewitness accounts in the, in the newspaper, four different new newspaper accounts, they give you a slightly different angle on the same story. And details just might vary a little bit. They're telling the same story. There was a car crash or there wasn't a car crash. They don't vary on that. But actually, you know, the timing maybe or the cause, whatever, those kind of things vary. And that's what we see in the New Testament. We see those eyewitness accounts, authentic eyewitness accounts. What they're reporting is consistent. But the way, the details, some of, them, some of them just vary a little bit. So we're going to pause there for a moment because I think we've reached an interesting point in this talk. We've got verifiable translations. We've got sound copies and transmission. We've got good reason to believe that the books in the New Testament are the books we should be looking at. And we've got authors who intended us to believe what they wrote. Now, we've flown through this. But I think, honestly, I get to that point and I say, we've got good reason to conclude that the New Testament is historically authentic and reliable. I think the other, the other theories, the other approaches fall away when you, when you kind of begin to probe and have a look at them. I think we've got good reason to believe that the New Testament is historically authentic and reliable. Now, at this point, we could do a number of things. We could begin to get into the Old Testament and have a similar conversation there. Um, but we're not going to do that. We could look at the question of, it's historically accurate, but is it the word of God? We're not going to cover that this morning. That's a different talk. I do just want to say about the Old Testament, though. If you look in the New Testament, the Old Testament is so heavily referenced and referred to and quoted and believed in and part of everyday life that if you're saying, I believe the New Testament and I believe Jesus said and did this stuff, you kind of get the Old Testament for free because Jesus believed it. The New Testament says Jesus is God and he believed the Old Testament. You know, you're on a pretty sticky wicket to go, yeah, but I don't believe the Old Testament. You know, I'd want to see some really good evidence for that. So when you say I'm, I'm buying the New Testament, 
you kind of get the Old Testament by implication for free. There's lots more to it than that, but I think that's a pretty convincing argument. But you go, okay, I get all that, I get all that. But that miracle stuff, it, I, I just can't believe that, especially that one about the resurrection. You know, I've never experienced a miracle, so why would I believe in these miracles? Water into wine. But when Jesus died and was buried in a tomb and then rose again back to life, ascended to the Father, oh, that's just that's beyond my experience. So I really struggle to believe in that. I think the, 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 the authors were good men with good intent, but they just got that one wrong because I can't believe it. Well, I think we probably need to stop and go, well, why did they believe it? Before we just sweep that out, why did they believe that? And we're going to quickly focus on just two things. One, well, first of all, let me just say, the New Testament tells us what Jesus did. He died on the cross. Um, He was buried in a tomb. The tomb was sealed with a big rock. There were guards outside. But when the disciples went along there to see Jesus, the tomb was empty. That's one thing I want to look at. And then shortly after that, Jesus was seen walking around, talking to people, interacting with people, touching people, eating. He was seen bodily in the flesh. 500 people saw him. So I want to look at those two things. You see, you can be pretty certain that something happened there. You know, we've, we've already established that the Bible was a reliable account. Something happened there. Either Jesus died and was resurrected or something else happened. You know, it's a seismic event that sent shockwaves around the world. The church exploded in growth, and, it, and, and, it's, and we still see it growing today. It's a profound um, occurrence there. What happened? I want to know what happened there. You see, some people say, I can't believe in the resurrection. Well, I'm going to say, you tell me what happened then. What are the alternatives? Let's have a look at some of the alternatives. Maybe he didn't die on the cross. Maybe he just was profoundly unwell. He's on the cross. He's up there for hours. Professional executioners are, are, are fastening into the cross, guarding him, stabbing him with a spear. He's on there for hours and hours. They get him down. He's dead. But maybe you go, I don't believe he was dead. He was just um, pining. So then they put him in the tomb. They seal him up. They put guards there. If he wasn't dead, he was pretty close to dead. Somehow, after a short nap, he's regained his strength. He pushes this big boulder away, overpowers the guards, and he's walking around again talking to people. And I just don't believe that. I just find that too beyond the bounds of possibility. This is what history does this. History's looking back to go, what's the most likely explanation? And that isn't the most likely explanation. So I don't believe that Jesus didn't die. You go, um, okay, well, maybe the body was stolen. You see, the disciples would have had um, vested interest in stealing the body because uh, you might say the disciples knew that Jesus had to rise again, therefore the body couldn't be there. So disciples went in and stole it. But again, remember that point, most of them were killed for their faith. If they knew where the body was, you know, they're about to be murdered. They go, all right, you're right, it's a hoax, the body's over there. They'd save their lives. People don't get killed for a lie. So I don't think it's credible to say, that the disciples stole the body. But you might go, ah, the authorities, they stole the body. But if they did that, they'd just need to produce the body to say, this Christianity thing is nonsense. Look, Jesus is here. He didn't rise again. I've got this corpse. And that didn't happen either. No evidence for that. So I don't believe that the authorities stole the body. So I I can't account for the empty tomb. Maybe there's other um, theories I don't know, but I can't account for the the empty tomb unless Jesus rose from the dead. But what about the sightings? Again, maybe that was a hoax, but again, 
why would the disciples die for a hoax? And it was, it was very, very well maintained. You know, 2,000 years later, that hoax still hasn't been uncovered. I don't believe it was a hoax. Maybe the sightings of Jesus were a mass hallucination. They all desperately wanted to see Jesus again, and lo and behold, they saw Jesus. But hallucinations don't happen en masse. You know, if I see a pink elephant in the room, you don't, because I'm crazy and you're not. Yeah, that's how the hallucinations work. You do, we don't all see the same hallucinations, so that doesn't stack up either. I don't think there is a convincing explanation, apart from Jesus died and rose again. I mean, that's, that just seems like outside of my experience. But that's what the Bible says. That's what the New Testament authors believed. We've already decided that's reliable. They believed that stuff. They died for that stuff. And I don't see a better explanation. So I conclude Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead. Again, N.T. Wright said this. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case for the resurrection is as watertight as one is likely to find. I love that. You know, we do, we, we do apply a different lens. We're looking at history and stuff, and then we look at the New Testament, and we're so rigorous about the New Testament. And yet, when you, even, even through that difficult, rigorous lens, the case is as watertight as one is likely to find. So, I would say, having studied and investigated these arguments at some length, I'm persuaded that the New Testament writings are a reliable account of what actually happened. I believe the translation's trustworthy, the copies are good, we're looking at the right scriptures, the, the authors really meant what they were writing, they thought they were writing the truth, they meant us to believe it as truth, they weren't mistaken. Jesus really did rise from the dead. I honestly don't think there's an alternative explanation that's reasonable. But, if it's true, it's a massive claim. It's a massive claim with eternal implications. You know, we're treating this as history, but let's just stop and go, it's way, way, way more than that. If Jesus conquered death, if God really did come as a man and die and was resurrected again for our sins, if that's the truth, oh, that's massive, isn't it? I honestly think, you know, we, we need to take that very seriously. We need to respond to that. That's what the Bible says. We need to respond to that in our hearts. The Bible's clear. Jesus did become Man, God became man. He lived and died and was resurrected as the saviour of the world. And right now, we can turn this kind of rather dry academic historical approach into something real and living and personal in your life. We can turn that into reality for you today. Jesus said that all who come to him and accept him as Lord and saviour, to all those he will give the gift of new life, eternal life. So can I get the band and the prayer team to come forward at this point, please? So um, the band are going to play. We're going to sing a little bit. The prayer team are going to be over here. We always have the prayer team. You may have um, something you want prayer for. I don't know, a bad leg, a difficult situation, whatever it is. Come down the front and get some prayer. And you, what, the way that works, while we're singing, you can just make your way over there. Or maybe afterwards you can make your way over there and get some prayer. But in particular as well, Following on from today's talk, if you want to respond, because um, maybe the kind of biblical jigsaw is just beginning to drop into place for you today, and that's been a bit of a kind of jolt for you, maybe a sort of lights on moment, I think it would be great to get some prayer about that. Maybe you're saying, wow, I get the resurrection is a reality, and that truth is just beginning to sink into your heart today for the first time. 
Come down the front, get some prayer. And maybe you're saying, Jesus, I believe in you. Come down the front and get some prayer. I think, I think you, need to, you need to respond to this. The Bible says we need to respond. And a fantastic way to do that is this morning. Before, before you walk away, come and get some prayer. Talk to these guys. Talk it through, chat it through, pray it through. I, that just feels like the right thing for me to do. And do you know, I feel, I feel for those, those three things I said. Um, you know, sometimes when we pray, we feel God puts stuff on our hearts. I think God put that on my heart when I was, when I was um, looking, at this, looking at this talk. I think there are people who are going, yeah, that biblical jigsaw is beginning to drop into place for me. So I think God's saying that to me to say to you so that you come down the front and get some prayer. I think there are people saying, I get the resurrection as a reality. I get it. If that's you, God's talking to you. Get some prayer. And there are some people going, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Same. God's talking to you. Come and get some prayer. This is real. Okay? So I hope that's been helpful. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to worship. Lord, we just want to thank you that um, we come to a God um, who's, who's trustworthy and true and factual, that you became man, you dwelt on earth as a man, you interacted with people, you spoke to them, you touched them, you ate with them. That Jesus died. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord. We thank you that Jesus was resurrected and is seated in heaven now. And we just want to say, Lord, that all glory is yours. You are Lord and Saviour. You are Lord and Saviour. We declare that in our hearts. We declare that to ourselves. You are Lord and Saviour. We declare that in this place. We declare that to this city. Jesus is Lord and Saviour. And Lord, in the same way that we say, have your way in our lives, Lord, we say, have your way in our city. Have your way here, Lord. Amen.